0: So I've been uh, asking the Lord how best to pray uh, for the crisis in the Ukraine. And um, to be honest with you, I've struggled along the way. Like, what, what do we say? How do we pray? Um, and then I had a good friend of mine who posted a prayer um, yesterday. And I just want to read the, this uh, poem, uh, this prayer that's written in a, uh, in a poem. And I just want to encourage you uh, just to listen to the words. And then when I'm done, i pray. Uh, The poem is titled, I No Longer Pray for Peace. I no longer pray for peace. On the edge of war, one foot already in, I no longer pray for peace. I pray for miracles. I pray that stone hearts will turn to tenderness, and evil intentions will turn to mercifulness. And all the soldiers already deployed will be snatched out of harm's way, and the whole world will be astounded. Onto their knees. I pray that all the God talk will take bones and stand up and shed the cloak of faithlessness and walk again in the power and powerful truth. I pray that the whole world might sit down together and share its bread and its wine. Some say there's no hope, but then I've always applauded the holy fools who never seem to give up on the scandalousness of our faith that we are loved by God and that we can truly love one another. I no longer pray for peace. I pray for miracles. So Lord, we do pray for a miracle. Uh, We know the scriptures talk about the wars and rumors of war and all this has to happen. But Lord, I pray that like these Old Testament prophets that we're studying, that you would uh, do something miraculous. That your angels would intervene that you would protect, that you would move in a powerful way. And I pray that the world would sit up and see the miracle that you do. We pray for peace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we are working our way through the minor prophets, and uh, hopefully it has been a good study for you. It's been great for me in preparing them. Um, These are minor prophets, not because they are less important, just because they're uh, a little bit shorter in length than some of the other ones. And what we've discovered along the way is the words spoken to the people of God some 2,500 years ago in the wake of moral decline, in the wake of of wars and rumors of wars and and all that's going on, that, that those words are just as important to us as they were 2,500 years ago, that there's something that God wants to say to us today as we study the minor prophets. So grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Haggai. Book of Haggai. This is the second shortest book in the Old Testament, so it's probably going to be a little bit harder for you to find. It sits right between Zephaniah and Zechariah. In my Bible, it's just one single page, uh, so it's going to take you a minute to find it. But while you're looking for it, let me just set the scene for you, give you a little bit of the, the context of what's going on. This book itself is written over the course of only four months. From the beginning of the writing to the end of the writing is about four months long, and it happens in a time period that's a little different than all of the other. Other prophets that we've looked at. So, so far, all of our minor prophets have talked about the coming of Assyria, then the coming of Babylon. Remember last week, we talked about the fact that Babylon was going to come in and that, that Jerusalem was going to be leveled and the people would be taken into exile. But by the time we get to this particular book, Haggai, the people have been in exile and now 70 years have passed. 70 years, and now they have returned back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. So Babylon has been overthrown by the Persian Empire. Cyrus, who was the king at the time, did something uh, really unprecedented and, and actually pretty amazing. He said to all of the exiles, not just the Jewish exiles, but all the exiles, you can go back to your homeland. And you can reestablish your family traditions and you can reestablish your temples and you can worship your gods. And you might ask yourself, why would he do this? Well, he actually had selfish motivation. He felt like if all the people went back and worshiped their gods that his kingdom would be find favor, right? So he's not necessarily doing it for, for uh, the right reasons, but he feels like it's going to be better. So the Jewish people are part of that. So 50,000 Jewish people travel back and they, they get back and they begin to rebuild the, the, the temple and rebuild their homes. They start to rebuild the temple, and then they come under some persecution from the Samaritans. Remember the Samaritans? We see them woven throughout much of the scriptures, but the Samaritans kind of shut it down. And so they stop rebuilding the temple, but they continue to rebuild their homes. Now 16 years have passed. Okay, so you get the whole storyline, they've come back, they're exiled, 70 years in exile, they start to rebuild the temple, they stop rebuilding the temple, they build their homes, and now it's been 16 years since they've been back, and they've been doing all the things that people do in Babylon, or in Israel back in those days, okay? So they're back in Judah, that's where we pick up the story, so if you got your Bible open, Haggai chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, now Cyrus, the king I just talked about, has passed away. Darius has taken over for him. In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, governor of Judah, and to uh, Joshua, the son of Zahosedek, the high priest. And thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house, meaning the temple, lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain and new wine and the oil and on what the ground brings forth, on man and on beast and on all their labors. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the minor prophets. Thank you for Haggai. Thank you for the word that you have for us this morning. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to your truth. I pray that seeds of truth would be planted in fertile soil, that deep roots would go and that it would bear fruit a thousandfold. And I thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you see each one of us, that you know each one of us, that you knit us together in our mother's womb, that you know every hair on our head and that you speak to us personally. So Lord, I pray in these next few minutes. That we would hear a word from the living God, that we'd leave this room different than we came, that we would leave this broadcast different than we came, because we have heard a, heard a word from the living God. We ask all this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So it's been often been said that the two traits of highly successful people is one, they understand priorities right? They understand what's most important. They make a good list. They understand the priorities. And the second trait, they are consistently willing to do the hard stuff. They know what they're supposed to do. They know what their priorities are. And even if the priorities are difficult, they are willing to do it. Now, when I say the uh, character traits of highly successful people, I I, I do the successful thing because I, I know that That There's a few different definitions of success, but interestingly enough, these definitions of highly successful people apply to success in the world, but it also applies to whether or not we are going to be successful in our journey with Jesus, if we are going to walk faithfully with Jesus, if we are going to finish well with Jesus, then we need to have our priorities in order, and we need to be willing to do the hard stuff. If you look at verses 5 and 7 of the passage that I read, the first chapter, it says, consider your ways. Twice, right? Consider your ways. God is saying, check your motivation, right? Ask yourself, what are you doing and and why are you doing it, right? What are you loyal to? Who and what do you love? One of the the devotionals that we did this week, if you guys are doing the uh, Emotionally Healthy Relationships, it talked about your, everything you do is motivated that way. What you love determines how you live your life. What you love determines the choices that you make. So asking yourself, considering your ways, God, what, what, is, my, what is my motivation? Why do I do what I do? Right? It's a question we as followers of Jesus need to ask ourselves on a regular basis. Why do you come to church? If you are a person that reads the word of God, even ask yourself, why do I read the scriptures? Why do I go to the scripture? Consider your ways, pay attention to your priorities. It is a critical discipleship lesson. So when Paul was talking to his his mentee, right? And he's talking to, to Timothy, he says, Timothy, pay attention. He actually says, pay close attention to your life right? Pay attention to why you do this. Pay close attention to your life and your doctrine and your teaching. He's saying, make sure you know what your priorities are. Make sure you know why you do what you do. Even the philosopher Socrates said, an unexamined life is not worth living. Consider your ways. Pay attention to your life. Examine your life. We all need to take time, we all need to step back and we need to consider who we are and what God desires from us. What are our gifts? What are our passions? What are we, what are we most excited about? And if we fail to intentionally consider our ways, we will inevitably, listen, church, we will inevitably, inevitably drift away from what God has for us, right? And we will slip into what I would call the mundane or the mediocrity, right? You Get up in the morning, you eat breakfast, you go to work, you come home, you eat dinner, you watch a little TV, you go to bed, and you do it all the next day, right? And day after day, the, the mundane and the monotony of life kick in. One of the authors I read this week said this mindless life of repetition is no better than that of a donkey, and it's miserable, But here's the deal, the discipline of self-examination brings life to all of those activities that would normally fall into the mundane, right? We begin to realize that going to school, like going to school can actually be an opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. Or as you're going to discover next week, that that going to work is meant to be an, an act of worship, Right That we have the opportunity to go to work and to have impact on the people around us, for the kingdom of God. Suddenly, when we consider our ways and our priorities in the right ways, everything we do has an opportunity to bring glory to God or to make God known. Now everything has life. Everything has meaning, but it requires self-examination. It requires considering your ways. So are you just punching the clock? Or do you you see work as an opportunity to share your faith with more people? Are you just going to school or does school have some redemptive purpose? Back to the book of Haggai. The people had gotten used to a new normal. It's funny, I couldn't help but think about the post-pandemic world we live in. How we've gotten used to a, a new normal. And some of it's probably okay. Some of it might even be good. But some of it is not so good. Right, So they had gone without church, they had gone without a temple for 16 years. Right, Look at verse 4. God asks them this penetrating question. For the record, if God's going to ask you a question, it's usually penetrating. Right? In my, story, my life, whenever God wants to ask me a direct question, he's usually trying to get at something he needs to get at. So God asks the, the remnant a question in verse 4. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruin? Paneled houses just means finished houses. All the walls are done. The roof is done. There's probably some beautiful decor hanging on the walls. They've had 16 year, years to make their houses exactly what their houses need to be. And he says, Is it, is it time for you to continue to, to make and to dwell in your beautiful homes while neglecting the temple of God? And it's important to understand... Nowhere in here is it saying there's anything wrong with having nice houses. It's about priorities. He's trying to get at their priorities. Everything you're doing, you're doing for yourself. If you go back, you read the passage I read, he talks about you're, you're, you're doing everything in your own strength. You're doing everything for yourself. Stay with me for a minute because this is critical. The temple is just a building, right? The, the, it was no more than a building, but... It was the gathering place for the people of God. It was a place where community was formed. It was a critical location for corporate worship, right? It's a place where the people could come and celebrate the festivals and and belong to something bigger than themselves. It was a place where God's presence actually would rest and they would come and they would experience the actual presence of God as they joined together in community. It was the necessary part of the people belonging to something bigger than themselves or even bigger than their immediate family, right? It's this common place where people could serve one another and and love one another and encourage one another. And what we know from the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, which basically are are the stories that take place around what Haggai is talking about. So it's the same storyline. If you want more details, go read Ezra, read Nehemiah, and you can see the whole thing in detail. But we know what happens is they build the temple— Right? And as the people start, begin to worship, the temple becomes the central place that eventually spurs on this incredible revival that you read about in Nehemiah. But the temple was a necessary part of the revival that's going to come. Right? It, it doesn't have anything to do with the building itself, but what the building represented was a, a neglect of the people. They neglected to actually practice their faith. They're falling into the same trap that we've been talking about week after week. They had forgotten God. They'd gotten used to the routine of just doing life without God. The call to build the temple was a call to return to God. Consider your ways. Get your priorities straight. It's always been and always will be about the hearts of the people. Not the building. Not the structure. But the hearts of the people. It's the way it is, and it's the way it always will be. Like if you have an encounter with God in this building, it's not because of the building, right? It's because of of your posture and the way you come into the room and the way you experience God. You, your heart is what determines whether or not this becomes a sacred experience for you or not. As a matter of fact, there's lots of warnings, especially through the minor prophets of doing this thing we call church or going to the temple in their case as a ritualistic act, right? What does he say to the people? He says, you, you, you confess me, you say the right things with your lips, but your lives don't honor me. He says, you bring the sacrifices into the temple. You follow the rituals, but then you go and you oppress your neighbors, right? It it never was about just going through the motions All of the motions in the temple themselves were just a mean to an end. And the end is the presence and the power of God in our lives. Don't come to church to check a box. You come to church to experience and to grow in your understanding of God and to have an encounter with the living God. God says to Haggai, it's time. It's time for the people to consider their ways and return to me and build the temple. To live right before me. It's time for self-examination and self-assessment. But there's something else this short book uh, says that that maybe, just maybe, you can relate to. I know I could. God is telling the people, when you leave me out of the picture, right? When you try to do things in all of your own gifting and all of your own strength and all of your own cleverness... You're always going to come up empty. Look at verse six. You have sown much, and you've harvested little. Right? You've worked hard, but you're not getting much return. You eat, man. You never really have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. Actually, some translations say, "But you never get drunk." You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. Right? He who earns wages puts them into a bag with holes. They got holes in your pocket. Maybe you can relate to this. Like you, you're working hard, but the bank account is still pretty low. You buy more and more stuff, but you still have this insatiable appetite for more and more stuff. You put money in your pocket, but it seems to fall right through a hole in your pocket. Some people would call that children. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Right? This is, the, this is what I would call the hamster wheel of life. Like we run and we run and we run and all we get is tired. We don't get anywhere. When we do it in our own strength, when we forget God, when we don't do the self-examination and we're going after things and going after things, all we get is tired. And Jesus knew all about this hamster effect, right? He knew that it was the human condition. And he says, why are you wearing yourself out, chasing after all of these worldly things. Jesus said, get your priorities in order. He says, consider your ways. Look at what he says in Matthew 6, 33. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then, right, and then all of these other things, they'll be added to you. But it's all about priorities. Do you see that? It's, it's about first things first. It's about knowing what's most important. Seek first God's kingdom. And everything else is going to work out. I always always ask questions. This is my favorite part of preaching because you guys are like, won't raise your hand. I could ask like, who wants a million dollars? I'm not raising my hand. Okay, here's the question. Who wants the blessing of God? Right, I would think we would, even if we're a bit atheistic, I would think we think, well, can't hurt. Right? I'll take the blessing of God, right? We all want the blessing of God. I say this all the time. The movement of God in your life always starts with an invitation. And the invitation, when received and lived into, will always reap a blessing. Blessing always comes with the invitation. The problem is we often say no to the invitation, but we still want the blessing. Right? We say, no, well, God, that's too hard. Well, I don't want to look foolish, we have all kinds of reasons. Well, what you're asking for, that's pretty sacrificial. I, no, I don't want to do that, but, but I'll take the blessing. Right? So, so you pray. And you say, God, my marriage is in shambles, right? My marriage is a mess. God, will you save my marriage? And God says, I want to invite you into something. I want to invite you into loving your wife sacrificially. I want you to stop thinking about where she messes up and just work on you. I just, want, I just want you to work on you, and I want you to love her sacrificially. And he said, well, no. That's too much. you got to change her too. God, that's too hard. And the invitation is there. He say, I don't want to do that, but, but would you save my marriage? Do you get this? We do this all the time. God invites us, but it seems too hard for us, and we, we push it away. Maybe you're single and you're beginning to to date and you're praying, God, would you give me a a godly person to date, a godly person to eventually marry? And God says, yeah, I want to bless you with that. But here's the deal. In your dating life, you have to remain pure. No. Right? We say no. We say, well, I don't want to do that. But I'll take the blessing. Give me a godly relationship. But But no to the invitation. Do you see what I'm saying? We do this all the time. It's just part of the fallen human condition. Consider your ways. If there are consistent problems in your life, ask yourself. Consider maybe, just maybe, it's God using those problems to get your attention. God invites them to get their priorities straight. The people rally together, right? And they build the temple. They accept the invitation from God and they build. The problem is what they build is not very good. It's not pretty. It's not fancy. It's nothing like Solomon's temple. Look at chapter two, verse three. Haggai writes these words. He says, who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? Again, the house is the temple. He's saying, how many of you are 70 plus years old? You were here when the original temple was here. You went into exile and now you're back and you're looking at this measly, shabby little thing we're calling to the temple, right? How do you see it now? Is it nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Zahodak, the high priest. Be strong, all the people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I'm with you declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. It's not about the structure. It's about the presence of God, right? It's not about the problems in your life. It's about actually having the presence of God to navigate through those situations, he says, be strong, for I'm with you. That hearkens all the way back to Joshua and the taking of the promised land. Whatever you're facing, the presence of God is all you need. Do you get that? Whatever you are facing, the presence of God changes Everything. And then to hammer home this idea of getting your priorities straight and and putting God first and realizing it's all about God. That's what he's trying to get to. There's this little section in Haggai that's really strange, right? So he asks the priest a question. God says to the priest, if the priest carries the sacrificial meat, which is made holy by God in the fold of their garment, right? And their garment touches other stuff, does the stuff that the garment touch become holy? And the priests say, no. Why not? Because holiness is not transferable. Only God can make something holy. But then he says, but what happens if a person touches a dead body? Do they become unclean? Yes, they do. What if they touch something else? Does it become unclean? And he says, the priests say, yeah, it does. Because unholiness, uncleanness spreads like wildfire. But only God can make something holy. Holiness is not transferable. Understand this. This this can be a holy place. I believe this is a holy place. I believe that God has blessed this building. And people come and visit and they say, I can feel the presence of God in this place. But do you know, this place can't make you holy. Only God can make you holy. Holy. No priest, no pastor, no rabbi, no guru has the ability to make anything holy. Only God can make you holy. What's the point? What does this have to do with a temple? Everything. Because if they began to worship the building right, then they no longer are considering their ways. They're no longer understanding that the righteous live by faith and only faith. Going to church doesn't make you holy. Reading your Bible doesn't make you holy. Only God can do that. Holiness is not transferable. Haggai is telling them, return to God. Consider your ways. Walk with me faithfully. And then look at Haggai 2.19. It says, from this day on, if you do this, from this day on, I will bless you. Consider your ways. Are you living intentional? Are you intentionally pursuing more of the presence and the power of God in your life? Are you willing to carve out time for him? Are you willing to say yes to the invitations of God even if they're difficult? Why do you do what you do? The warning of the book of Haggai is that routine of life can cause us to drift. The single most important priority in your life is the presence and the power of God. The book ends with this messianic promise. It's another one of those confusing moments where it talks about being a signet ring. And all he's saying is to the current governor. So uh, I didn't cover this when I was doing a little bit of history. But when the Babylonians came in and they took uh, the exiles. The king at the time, right, was uh, Jehoiakim or something like that. Anyway... He's gone. Now when they come back, it's Zerubbabel who is his grandchild. So he's in the direct line of David who is now the governor or the sitting ruler. And what do they say to Zerubbabel? That you will become a signet ring. What he's saying is through your line will come a king of all kings. Through your line will come the Lord of all lords. It's Jesus. Remember one of the six big messages is Jesus is coming. Right? And so there's this messianic promise that that it's okay. I'm going to do the very things. And if you read that, it talks about the fact that there will be no more wars, that all nations will come to Jerusalem, all nations will worship God. We haven't seen that part of the prophetic promise, but we have seen the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The movement of God in your life always, always starts with an invitation. God invites the people to build to get back to their right priorities and they accept the invitations. And here's what I would say to you as your pastor or your friend, God is inviting every one of you to something. I don't know what it is, but I can guarantee you if you can hear my voice, whether you're in this room or you're on the broadcast, God is inviting you to something, it may be to start something or it may be to stop something. But I guarantee you he's inviting. And if you really want to listen to him, it may be pretty hard. But if you want the blessings of God, you got to accept the invitations of God. So I want to close by actually just giving you a minute. It'll seem like longer than a minute, but I'm actually just going to give you one minute. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And what I do all the time here is I just ask you to open your hands. You don't have to raise them above your head. I just want you to open your hands as a way of saying, God, I'm, I'm open to, to hear whatever you want to say to me. That's all you're doing is just, just signaling. That's your first invitation. Open your hands. And just pray the prayer. God, what are you inviting me into? What, where is the invitation, God? God, what is the invitation you have for me this morning? Lord, I thank you that you are a God who speaks. I pray that you would speak to your people. I pray that you would continue to speak to me. I thank you for the minor prophets and how you have uh, even awakened my spirit to new things and exciting things as we've prepared and studied and taught through these wonderful, wonderful books. Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to accept the invitations. Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So a group of people meet before the services in the chapel and pray for you. And they listen for what God might want to say uh, to individuals, to the church as a whole. Uh, The Lord wants to redeem some broken relationships. There's no question about that. Uh, That we want to just encourage the babies that were dedicated today, that they're going to grow up to be pillars of faith in the future. And those of you that have poured into building that foundation of faith for the next generation need to continue to do more. I think about Tony's words when he encouraged us to continue to spread seeds among the younger generation. Uh, There's a group of people that would meet down here and pray with you if you want prayer, physical healing, spiritual healing, maybe a little bit of both. If you're online, there's a couple phone numbers that you can just call. And we have somebody that's trained that can go into a private prayer session with you. Pray for you as well. Thank you for being here. Join us next week as we continue.